In the third week of a journey through the Old Testament book of Esther, um, and uh, we're going to continue that here this morning. In fact, if you have a copy of the Bible, you can meet me in Esther chapter 2. We're going to just look at a few verses in um, the second chapter of Esther. And uh, man, for those of you who've maybe not been with us from the start of this series, I can't encourage you strongly enough to, uh, man, to catch up. Head to our website, head to our YouTube page, head to our Facebook um, page, uh, free of charge. You can catch up uh, to where we are at uh, present. But let me give you a, a quick, quick summary of uh, what we've seen so far. Um, we are in the book of Esther invited into a cultural time and a cultural context that's very different from ours, which man just calls us to be a little bit more curious and ask a few more questions so that we're not tempted to naturally superimpose our values and our priorities and our practices on a culture just because it's different from ours. We want to ask, Lord, what do you want us to learn from what it is that we see? What is it that we want to maybe understand a little bit better um, as we journey through this book together? But this uh, story is set in uh, the ancient kingdom of Persia, the superpower of the world at that time. More specifically, it's set in the capital city of Susa in the kingdom, the empire of Persia. And uh, so to this point, we've met um, the most powerful man on the planet, uh, the king of Persia, a dude by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes had a minor um, slash major domestic dispute with his wife, the queen Vashti. Uh, that dispute left him very angry and in his rage he ended up instituting a policy that drove his wife out of the palace, out of his presence, never to see her again. And he stripped her of her crown, uh, meaning she's now no longer queen. And while he was at it, uh, with the help of some of his male advisors, he instituted a policy that said women all across the kingdom are subordinate to men and must be subject to the men in their lives. Um, man, a little bit later on, um, he misses his wife. Uh, Xerxes experiences a little bit of regret and he misses um, Vashti. And in the midst of missing Vashti, he issues another ridiculous order. This time he requires that all beautiful virgins be abducted essentially and brought into his palace to audition for the role of replacing Vashti as the queen. It's in that context that we meet two of the main characters in this story. In fact, this morning, we're just going to zoom in and get to know these two characters a little bit more. A man by the name of Mordecai and a woman by the name of Esther. Matter of fact, we don't want to just get to know them a little bit better. We want to learn from them and maybe see what it is God might be calling us to as we observe their lives. So, again... We're going to start reading in Esther chapter 2 at verse number 6. We'll pause and make some observations as we go along. Um, Esther chapter 2 actually at verse 5. Um, here's what it says. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, a son of Shimei, the son of Kish. 
Kish had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive when Joachim, king of Judah, was carried off. Now, it's only been a couple of weeks, but I think we're starting to learn that this author is very, very particular and deliberate with what details of the story he chooses to include and what details of the story he chooses to skip. Uh, About 120 years prior to the events that we are looking at together, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the then superpower of the world, Babylon, went in and he just... Man overpowered God's chosen people, the Israelites, and he carried their king off into captivity. And along with the king, he carried off um, the nation's best and brightest. Um, And um, the best and brightest, along with the king, ended up becoming slaves in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Among that group of the best and brightest was Mordecai's grandfather. In fact, Mordecai's great-grandfather, a dude by the name of Kish. Um, It's interesting, the author is telling us some of these bits and pieces because he wants us to know that whoever Mordecai is, he comes from some good Jewish Stock. Because Nebuchadnezzar only took into captivity the best and the brightest. Now the rest of the nation was scattered for a variety of reasons. But he only took the best and the brightest. To whom Mordecai's great grandfather Kish belonged. Um, If there's any doubt about just how elite Mordecai's bloodline was. He tells us that Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, Benjamin was one of two tribes. There were 12 tribes in Israel, but only two of them technically ended up being considered and becoming the nation of Israel. And Benjamin was one of those tribes. And oh, he was a great grandson of Kish. Ooh, if you start doing the math and you carry the one, you quickly figure out that the author wants us to know That Mordecai was one of the great, great, great grandkids of Israel's first king, King Saul. Whoever Mordecai is, y'all need to know he has the holy blood of God's people and the royal blood of kings coursing through his veins. This is a special dude. You don't get any more elite as a Jew than Mordecai was. But almost in this ironic twist of fortunes, um, (laughs) the author kind of clues us into the fact, but yeah, and all of that meant absolutely nothing to the Persians. I'm sorry, Mordecai, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. Your stock doesn't matter here at all. No one cares about your bloodline here. Your spiritual status is not a perk. We don't care that you are one of God's chosen people. That doesn't matter. Here you are just an exiled foreigner. The best you can hope for here is to get a labor level job. Sorry, dude. None of the rest of it matters 
in Persia. Woo! But as we'll see here in a little bit, what ultimately determines Mordecai's role in this story is not the opinion of the Persians. It's not the limits the culture puts on him on account of the fact that he's an exiled foreigner. What ultimately determines Mordecai's role in this story is the very blood that's coursing through his veins. It is the fact that he belongs to God's chosen people and he has royalty in his blood. Kind of like you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you didn't know, but you are a spiritual descendant of the king of all kings, Jesus himself. You have royal blood coursing through your veins. Maybe you didn't know, and you belong to God's chosen people. And those things may not matter very much in our culture, but guess what? The opinion of this culture doesn't get to determine your story and your role in God's purposes in our world. What determines that is the fact that you belong to the king and you have royal blood in your veins. Don't get me started about that but let me just say stop spending so much time auditioning for the approval of our particular culture they don't get to say where you ultimately end up anyway Mordecai verse 7 he had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother this young woman who was also known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now he introduces us to Esther. And once again, very fascinating to zone in on what details he chooses to include. What he wants us to know about this main character in the story. And one of the first things he wants us to know is Esther um, was a Jew. And even though he will never use it again in the course of his retelling of this story. When he first introduces us to Esther, he introduces us to her by her Jewish name. Y'all may know her by her Persian designation, but let me introduce her to you using her Jewish name, Hadassah. And she's not just any Jew, by the way. She and Mordecai were cousins. Their dads were brothers, which means she comes from some legitimate good Jewish stock because whatever was true about Mordecai was also true about Esther. She belonged to an elite category of God's chosen people. Oh, and she also had royal blood coursing through her veins. But more than that, he wants us to be introduced to the pain and the agony that is Esther's journey to this point. He wants us to know that her life has been marked by hardship and hopelessness. In fact, we'll put up on the screen a couple of things we learn very quickly about Esther. Number one, we learn that she's an orphan. At some point when she was just a little girl, her parents both died. I can't say for sure, but my strongest suspicion is that her parents were both killed on account of their nationality. But we'll talk more about that. But Esther's not just an orphan, she is a Jewish orphan. 
She's not just lost both of her parents, but she's lost both of her parents in a place in which she is considered a second-class citizen. Because we don't care how royal your blood is around here. But she's not just an orphaned Jew, she's an orphaned Jewish girl in a country that legally subjugates girls. In which power and opportunity favors the The boys. He's painting a picture just asking the question, how much more limited would her opportunities be to become anything in Persia than even, say, somebody like Mordecai? But she's not just a subclass and a a subjugated orphaned girl. Unfortunately for her, she's also beautiful. She's beautiful at a time when this royal mandate has gone out demanding that beautiful virgins be rounded up and taken to the king's palace for the king's pleasure. He's painting a picture when he introduces us to Esther. He wants us to feel that sinking feeling that the odds could not possibly have been more stacked against This girl, a subjugated girl, now ordered to leave her home and spend her life as one of the king's slaves. After having already lost her parents. The chances of this girl's life amounting to anything are super bleak. The odds are stacked up against her. But woo. Just like was true, I like whoever that is, with Mordecai. He is stacking the odds to shout a recurring truth in this story. There is no amount of pain. There is no amount of loss. There is no amount of injustice that ultimately gets to determine her role in this story. He's shouting even the most hopeless of all conceivable situations. Even in that there is no way out of this, Esther. I'm sorry. That even in the midst of all of the pain and all of the agony and all of the drama and all of the limitations, God is working his best purposes for Esther's life. And I didn't say God is working his most decent purposes for Esther's life. I said he is working his best purposes for Esther's life. We're going to see this. He's not just working to help this poor subjugated girl. Like just you know to barely survive. He's not working to, to, to help this you know subordinate slave orphan girl. To just kind of barely scrape by. No he is working his best purposes in the midst of the greatest odds and obstacles. Watch what God is doing through her story. Because her history, her pain, the subjugation, those things don't get to determine her role in this story. Now, just I'm warning you, close your ears if you don't want to hear this spoiler alert. All right, too late. Esther, this subjugated orphan girl becomes the most powerful woman on the planet 
and saves an entire people group from annihilation. This same girl. This slave girl is going to become the queen of Persia, y'all. And she is going to play the men in this story like chess pieces. For the purposes of, I said his best purposes. I didn't say his medium, mediocre purposes. Yes. Because man, when God is for you, there are not enough odds in this world to stack against his best purposes for you. There are not enough laws in our land. There are not enough abuses of power to keep him from getting where he's taking you on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death to the greener pastures of his best purposes. Someone needs to hear your family drama doesn't get to decide God's best purposes for you and where he's ultimately taking you. Your shady bosses, they don't get to limit your calling, believe it or not. It doesn't matter how many rules or policies they put in place to try to limit where you're going. They don't ultimately get to determine God's best purposes for your story. What they did to you doesn't get to determine what God is fixing to do through you. Even when you don't see it, he's working. We just sang those words. And he's not doing it so you can barely scrape by. He's not doing it so you can have, you know, a couple of equal rights here and there. It's not just to get you out of that situation you thought you'd always be stuck in. We have such a survival mentality, like God is interested in us just kind of scraping by. No, his best purpose is and nothing in our culture. Nothing in your story. No odds stacked against you because if God is for you, Esther becomes queen against all odds. But then uh, the author gives us some of the beautiful ways in which God works out his best purposes in Esther's story. And this is almost easy for us to skip over and get to the crowning part and get to uh, the, the, the... the main part of the story. But man, we're Mission Point Community Church. So stuff like this is going to be very hard for us to skip over. The second part of verse number seven. Mordecai had taken her, Esther, as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, We don't know exactly how old Esther was when her parents died, but we know she was just a child, too young to to take care of herself, in need of someone to protect her and to provide for her. Otherwise, there is no way she would have survived. The point is, though, when Mordecai hears that his uncle and his aunt have died, And uh, that they've left a vulnerable child with no one to claim and care for her. He makes an outrageous choice. He chooses to step up 
and to step in to Esther's story and to essentially say, I will fend for you and I will fight for your future. He chooses to adopt Esther. That's insane. Easy to skip over, but this is absolutely insane. There is nothing in the story that hints at the fact that Mordecai was married. Which means he chooses to take on this responsibility with no promise of help. Just a single adoptive dad. There's no hint that Mordecai had any other children. Which means he's choosing to take on this responsibility with no experience to speak of. This dude has no idea what he's doing. He's never read what to expect when expecting at all. Ah, We learn that Mordecai has some kind of a job at the palace gates. Whether it's... uh, It's a security gig or whether he's a groundskeeper, I don't know. But what we do know for sure (laughs) is Mordecai wasn't rolling in disposable income. He didn't have a nice little nest egg to speak of. So he is choosing to take on this responsibility and split the little he has between his needs and her needs. This is crazy to me. And yet that's who God uses. No help, no experience, no money. But apparently to Mordecai, it's not about what he doesn't have. It's about what he does have. And he chooses to leverage what he does have to fight for Esther's future. To help a vulnerable girl who is in a more difficult situation than he himself was. Now, it's really interesting. As I've been more curious and I've asked more questions, it seems as though uh, Mordecai was maybe 15 years older than Esther. The most logical explanation is that Mordecai's parents have died as well. Because if not, it would have been Mordecai's father's responsibility to take care of Esther. Because the brothers had that cultural obligation to each other. If you die, your kids become my responsibility. But Mordecai is the one stepping in. It is most likely that Mordecai's parents have died. Which means it's likely that Mordecai is a dude who understands what it's like to be in a situation where you are vulnerable. It's a guy like Mordecai who knows what he wishes other people might have stepped in to do for him. And how he would have wished somebody would fight for his future. And instead of talking about what he can do and what he doesn't know and what he doesn't have. He steps in and does for Esther what he might have wished somebody would have done for him when he was in that same Situation. And so this single broke dude makes a choice to set Esther up for a better future. That is insane to me. And there is nothing in it for him. One of the reasons I, I know that is, and I don't mean to make it really awkward here on uh, um, 
Mother's Day. But if uh, Mordecai was thinking about his own benefit, <laughs> uh, this dude would have been spending his energies grooming Esther to be his wife. Because that's what cousins did in that culture. It's how you preserve the integrity of the family line. Not to mention when Esther has grown up to be the most beautiful young woman in the entire land. But in this beautiful poetic juxtaposition, while Xerxes is overly concerned about his own pleasure, Mordecai seems committed to Esther's future and he makes decisions to sacrifice for her benefit. What a dude this guy is. But here's what I think is so absolutely beautiful about this story. (laughs) For Mordecai, um, in the midst of all of the inconvenience that came with his decision and all of the sacrifice and all of the difficulty and all of the challenges and all of the rumors that were spreading around town in the midst of all of the like, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I'm doing. In the midst of all the dropped balls, in the midst of all of the difficulty of his choice to fight for Esther's future, I love that he had no idea that the whole time he was raising a queen. I love that. He had no idea that locked up in this vulnerable little girl was the most powerful woman on the planet. He had no idea that the little girl whose future he fought for would one day fight to preserve his entire nation. He was raising a queen and he had no idea. I love that. No, no idea that his choice to, to bring up this little girl would be a choice to bring about God's best purposes. He was raising a queen. And I just came to ask you on this maternal day, if you knew that that vulnerable kid in the foster care system or that vulnerable kid in the orphanage That vulnerable kid in an abusive situation. That vulnerable kid maybe in a family that's lacking in necessary resources. I'm just asking you if you knew that that kid would one day grow up to sit in the Oval Office and help write policies that would save the lives of millions of people. Would you step in and sacrificially fight for her future? I'm just wondering. I'm just asking, if you knew that that fussy kid in our children's ministry would grow up and sit on the highest court in the land and be part of writing healing laws for generations and generations to come, would you maybe consider 
spending three Sundays over the course of the summer to go back there and let them know I'm invested in God's best purposes for you, you little snotty-nosed, difficult child. I'm just asking. How much would you consider doing if you knew you were raising a queen? How much would you consider doing if you knew that your sacrifice was playing a part in the purposes of royalty? If you knew your yes would play a part in him winning multiple Olympic gold medals and using that platform to help bring nations together, I'm just asking you, Would you step in? If you got to be Mordecai for a moment, would you do it? Would you sacrifice for her story? What would you do for that kid, that hurting kid, that vulnerable kid, if you knew she was going to be queen one day? Now. If you've been around uh, Mission Point for any amount of time, you most likely know exactly what I'm going to say next. Then do that. Do that very thing. Whatever you do for a vulnerable and hurting kid who you knew would become president one day, do that for a vulnerable and hurting kid. Not because she might be royalty one day, but because she already is. Because he already is. Listen, y'all. Contrary to popular opinion, every single child you see bears the royal mark of the king of the universe. Every single kid is created in the image of the high king of heaven. In that sense, every child you see has royal blood coursing through there veins. So do that. And we don't fight for children's future because, you know, of what they might one day become. We fight for their futures because of what they already are on account of the fact that they bear the mark of the high king of heaven. Because the king of kings and the king of queens says they bear My royal mark. And never leave one of my hurting little royals vulnerable and unfought for. And we believe that with everything we are as a church. That God is constantly, constantly inviting us to be Mordecai. Hey, join me in raising queens. Join me in raising 
kings. Partner with me in bringing about their best purposes for their own lives and for the lives of the people around them because my best purposes for you are always bigger than you and they're going to include other people. Make no mistake about it. Esther did not become valuable because she sat on a throne. To God, she was equally valuable as she cried over the loss of her parents. She was valuable to God when she was in her mother's womb bearing his very mark. I love that Mordecai got this. He had no clue she would be a queen one day, but he raised her and he treated her like she was one anyway. And I believe God would say to his church, do that. Now, we're not going to all, like Mordecai, adopt a vulnerable child, but we believe, as always, that we can all do something to fend for them and to fight for their futures, to partner with God in bringing about their best purposes. And man, as strange as this sounds, I just, on this Mother's Day, even though they may never hear this, I, I, I mean, I have the microphone, I'm sitting on this stage, I want to give a few shout outs to some of the Mordecais in my story, my personal story. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I was thinking about my aunt Visobe, who um, when I didn't have a place to stay and I needed to, to look for college, she took me in and she housed me for about 10 months. <laughs> I was of no benefit to her. Um, and she was doing this on the, the paycheck of a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. She did it anyway. Man, I, I want to give a shout out to to, to Russ and Becky Yoder in, in Worcester, Ohio, when they heard about a kid who was looking for a place in college, they didn't know me, but they took me in and they made me a part of their family and, and they fought for my future and they found a place for me in a little college in Podunk, Indiana called Grace College. I was of no benefit to those people. And I want to give a shout out to Don and Elizabeth Running. Because when they heard that there was a kid who had a place in college, but he didn't have a place to stay. And in order to go to college, he needed a place uh, to stay. They took me in. They gave me a home to stay in. They didn't know what kind of African I was. Things could have got weird for them in the middle of the night. But they chose to step in, fend for me somehow, and, and fight for my future. In many regards, I was of no benefit to them. And here's what I think is really interesting. None of those people had any idea that one day I would grow up to, to then open our home and take in three little chocolate-flavored Haitian queens. They didn't know. They had no idea that one day I would be part of a movement called Mission Point who was committed to championing home and hope for every child, figuring out ways to be advocates for the most vulnerable of kids. They had no idea about that. And while I'm giving shout outs, I want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Melissa Simfukwe, our queen of our home, for continuing to say the most challenging yes we've ever had to say. And I don't mean saying yes to marry me. That was the easiest yes. But I mean, uh, man, the yes of being adoptive parents and trying to figure it out. And we don't know what we're doing. And it's not always the most enjoyable. It's not like all the flyers say, y'all. I'm just telling you right now. Um, and yet she's continued to say yes 
to that. Shout outs to her. Shout outs to all of you who serve in our kids ministry. Come on, you all don't do that because it's convenient. You don't all do that because you know exactly what you're doing. You don't all do that because you like it. Some of you do. But shout out to those of you who said they're little kings and queens over there. And we want to be a part of fighting for their futures. And we want to be part of their story. And shout out to those of you who are going to say yes and sign up to serve three times over the course of this. Three times over the course of this summer in our kids wing. Not because it's a passion or it's a calling. Don't get Mordecai started on none of that stuff. But because you want to step into that space and look those kings and queens in the eyes and tell them, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I believe God's mark is on you and I believe he has purpose for you and I just want to play a part in that. Shout out to you all as a church who continue to say yes when an opportunity comes up to step into the stories of hurting and vulnerable kids. Um, shout out to you burgers and your ministry with Agatas in which you are stepping into the stories of kids and letting them know God has purpose for you through soccer and um, raising kings and queens. And now praise God for you little Kingston over there. You know what I'm saying? Um, man, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. We have an opportunity to partner with God regularly just like Mordecai did in raising Kings and queens. And it's not because they'll sit on thrones or sit in oval offices. But they are going to step into whatever God's purposes for them are. And we want to be a part of that. Providing safety and, and, and providing um, man, love and, and hope in as much as we possibly can. Shout out to you students who see hurting kids at school. And you step in and you call someone or you do something. And you, you protect in some Way. Your lives are making an incredible difference. That's what our whole wrapped initiative is all about this um, year, by the way. It is figuring out ways that we may not all do the same thing, but we can all start somewhere and we can all do something to speak into the stories of kids, particularly the most vulnerable of kids. Among us. In fact, in a few moments, Kirsten is going to come out and share a number of ways in which we get to do that over the course of the summer and to share, man, a number of, um, man, creative ways that you all get to say yes to that. But before she comes out, I want to just read a, a section of scripture because uh, I've got to throw some shade on Mordecai and I think this will encourage you. Uh, verse number eight. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had the charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace. And he moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he, Mordecai, walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. I love that picture of a concerned dad walking back and forth trying to find out any pieces of information that he can. But, come on, did anyone else notice that Mordecai 
this guy fought for Esther's future. But when the commissioner of abduction showed up at his doorstep to drag Esther off to sleep with the king, Mordecai let her go. Mordecai didn't even try to fight for her safety then. Like what is up with that? Just when I was starting to like you, Mordecai, you did not fight for her. In fact, his parting words to Esther seemed to be, hey, uh, make sure you lie about your nationality so they don't know about the stock from which you come. See you later. What? Let's pray. No, I mean, for real though. This, <laughs> this to me was so interesting. Um, oh, and by the way, spoiler alert, Esther became queen. <laughs> I was so struck by this. I was so thankful to God for this. And I know this is going to be encouraging to somebody who is listening to this right now. Because someone needs to know, playing a part... In the story of a child partnering with God to play a part in the story of a child does not mean playing that part perfectly. Partnering with God in his purposes for queens and kings means saying yes to God. And then messing things up and then doing things wrong and then getting some things right and then dropping the ball in other ways. There are so many of us who believe that if we're going to step into these spaces and if we're going to speak for it, we're going to fight for the futures of vulnerable kids, we've got to do it perfectly. Oh no, you are afraid in many ways that if I step into helping with kids, I'll drop one. And if I step into helping with vulnerable kids, I won't know what I'm doing. I'm going to mess things up. And you know what? Yes, you will. And they will become kings and queens anyway. God's best purposes for them don't depend on your perfection. God is inviting partners. He's got it. He just wants us to play our part, our messy part. And we will drop the ball and we will make mistakes. I'm talking to some of you parents who even on Mother's Day are beating yourselves up because you've made some mistakes. You haven't done things right. I'm talking to some of you parents who still believe if my kid does that one thing, her life will be over. She's going to be a queen anyway. Stop it. And if as a parent, I don't do this. And if she doesn't do this right. And if we don't get everything perfectly, Mordecai was telling Esther to lie. And she slept with a man who was not her husband and she became a king, a queen anyway. That is an endorsement for the God we serve. And I'm telling you, for so many of us, that's where we beat ourselves up. That's where we hold ourselves back. And you need to know our God is bigger than our failures and our mistakes and our messes. And that's the author's point. At the end of this story, y'all, we are going to find out one thing. And there is only one hero in this story. It's God. Everybody else is a hot mess. 
So keep saying yes to God with your hot messness and let him continue to pour out his grace and pour out his favor and pour out his strength. Let's just continue to partner with him and let him do what he does. All right. Kirsten, come on out. Father, thank you so much uh, for who you are. Thank you for the ways you've invited us to play a part and partner with you. Help us to continue to say yes and trust you to be the one who brings about your best purposes in the stories of so many kids. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.